This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. I had a a dream last night that I'm not going to call a God dream. You know how you have dreams and then you have these dreams every now and then. It's like, you know, I wonder if God's speaking to me. I don't have a lot of those, but I had a dream last night that was, I guess it sort of fits the the theme. Uh, I was uh, looking at a map and suddenly I discovered that Mount Everest was in Minnesota. Uh, And I was like, really? And I'm, I'm like confused staring at this map. It's like, there it is. Uh, and then the next thing you know, I was like there at, at one of those, uh, it, it'd be one of those, I don't know, visitor centers uh, for Mount Everest. And I was with my family and my, my grandparents, uh, my grandparents, my parents, my, my kids' grandparents, uh, my mom and dad who both passed away uh, in the past year and a half, were in the dream. It was totally normal that they were in the dream. And uh, I remember we were looking around this visitor center and there was no one there to help us. So we're there by ourselves, And I, I recognized that just out this one door, there were wild animals on Mount Everest. And you know, so it's like enter at your own risk. And then there was another door that was blocked by a couch that uh, said that there was the Anasazi Indians and they were you know, wild uh, and dangerous. And at any point in time, if you go out this door, it's not just the wild animals, but it's the Indians that could also get you. And so we chose not to go out that door, right? In fact, I didn't, I don't remember making a choice to go out any door, but the next thing you know, I'm in one of those transition sort of modes where, you know how you'd go in and you'd see a video before you enter into a ride or something like that? It was, it was one of those kinds of zones. And we're just moving forward on this Everest adventure and you know, into the wild animal zone, I'm guessing. I'm not sure, because I didn't say yes to do it, but next thing you know, we're, we're doing it. And out of the, the ceiling, the Anasazi Indians sort of show up. I mean, it was very scary, because like, there they are, how'd they get in here? And there's no one, no alarm system, there's nothing. It's a very poorly built uh, you know, setup. And they start shooting arrows at us. And so uh, we run out of the room, but there's a few uh, of the family members that were stuck in there. And so I'm like, come on, come on, come on. But they had to like run straight towards the arrows uh, to do it. Like the guy was taking a while. It's like he'd shoot an arrow. He was very poor at shooting. Like he was one of those stormtroopers in Star Wars where they cannot hit the broadside of a barn. And, you know, he would shoot. But I think it was because he was in the ceiling. He was trying to shoot. I'm not exactly sure why he was so bad, but he, he missed everyone. And so we finally got out. I remember my dad was there and they were gonna, they got it down out of the ceiling. So I'm like, help me, help me. And we had got that couch. Remember that couch that was blocking that one entrance? We got that and tipped it up against the door. I was a little concerned because all they had to do was like open it like this and it would tip the couch over. But I didn't, they didn't know that, right? And so we were trying to figure out how to get out of there. And there was a elevator uh, and I'm like, push the, push the button. And so my dad pushes the button and then I woke up. Isn't that a great setup for a sermon? Uh, you know, what, I'm, what I'm addressing today is spiritual warfare and the way that, and the tactics of the enemy to invade the inner domain of our life. And the, you know, part of us, I, I think one of those, the reasons why that's a great uh, advertisement or trailer uh, for where we're going 
is oftentimes we are at that point where we wake up and you know, we push the button. We don't know if we're going to be able to get out of this. We don't know who's going to win this thing. And it's interesting because the devil always wants to cast doubt on who's going to win this thing. And he wants to, he wants to make it seem like it's totally up in the air. Like, you know, come back next episode and find out. Where, when in actuality, we do know. We do know how this is gonna turn out. We do know who is victorious. We don't need to hear, you know, I actually tried to go back to sleep, not because I was enjoying the dream, but I really didn't like the fact that I didn't know if I was gonna get out of there. And I don't like cliffhangers, you know? And so this was a total cliffhanger. And technically the kingdom of heaven is not built upon a cliffhanger. We know the ending already, and we know that God wins. But the enemy is working overtime to try and make it seem like there's reason to doubt that ending. And there's reason to think that maybe he's going to come out on top. All right, guys, uh, look at that title. Look at that imagery. I mean, this is one intense message already. I mean, you start with my dream and then you go to this. Uh, this is intense, guys. If we had uh, seatbelts, we would be putting them on right now. The evil speedboats. Uh, I, and you, some of you are thinking, what, this is the first time you've ever been to Ellerslie, and that's like the first uh, sermon title you've heard. It's like, what is this? Is that even a legal super sermon title? Uh, it is. It is. Uh, so I'm going to talk about our inner life, and that's basically what I'm going to be referring to, and you'll understand where the speedboats come in. Uh, but the heavenly reservoir uh, and the island estate in the middle, in a sense, we are, we're made up in a... In a I, I would like to say a simplistic manner. You know, we're a three-part being where we have uh, a, a spirit man, we have a physical man, and we have a soul. And that soul is sort of like your mind, will, and emotion. It's you. And yet that you is stuck in a physical body. And you also have the spiritual dimension that is very, very important. It's the habitation of God. It's the, it's the way in which God intends to relate to us, which is dead. And so as we are born in this natural body, our soul is there, but there is something wrong with us. And there is a part, portion of us that was meant to be inhabited, meant to be filled, but it is empty. And so as we come unto Jesus Christ, there's a transformation that takes place and we are made alive, but not in the physical mortal sense, in a spiritual sense. And there's another dimension to us that awakens, that has eyes, but they're not just the mortal eyes, they're spiritual eyes. It has ears, but they're not just the mortal ears, they're spiritual ears. And we're able to now hear God. We're able to see what God is doing in this world. We're able to agree with it. Instead of just having a physical heart that goes doo -doo, doo -doo, in our chest, now we have a spiritual heart that is able to carry and feel what God feels. And this is a spiritual man. It's a new creation. It's a new creature, depending on which translation you get, in Christ. And this is what we are learning to tend to and care for. And it's, it's like the growth of an infant unto an adult. It starts out infantile and it has infantile physiological movement. It does not have the capacity to function as a full adult. So like you could tell uh, an infant or let's just use a toddler to go run a marathon and they may mean well and desire to do it, but they do not have the capacity yet to do it physically even though they have the genetic package to do it. In other words, in their genetic package, they will, if they continue in this body, faithfully stewarding the life that they have been given, they will ultimately be able to run a marathon. And the same is true for us, is we're gonna start out 
with the entire inheritance of what God has given us, but he's going to give it to us in measure. And as we exercise as toddlers, we grow up unto a perfect man. So uh, I, I thought you guys would enjoy that. A picture of you right there. Uh, it's pristine. I even put some mountains in the background since we're in Colorado, right? You can, you can just sort of see this. Now it has this pristine waters around. You see, when the waters are still, what do they do? They show forth the glory of the heavenlies. And that soul, uh, that's, that's like your soul around this, this mind, this mind that is stayed on Christ, this mind that is at perfect peace. And it's beautiful, right? Everything is lovely. And yet that's not the way most of us feel inside. If we were to look inside our lives, we wouldn't necessarily see a stable, uh, still, peace-filled mind. We wouldn't see waters of our soul that are completely calm and perfectly reflecting the glory of the heavenlies. There's a lot of movement in there, and that's partly what I want to talk about. Well, it's, I shouldn't just say partly. That is what I'm talking about. However, I also want to talk about how we address that, not just that it's there. I, wanted, I want these crystal clear still waters. So we're going to sort of take that same picture. There's our reservoir, right? And it has like this I don't want to call it concrete, even though it looks like a concrete type of barrier around the outside. And then it has that island uh, with, you know, that castle in the middle. That's really nice, really nice. You look really nice inside. I, I like how you look. And uh, so I'm going to break this up where we have sort of a will and an emotion around the edge. These are entry points, if you could call it that. There's, there's going to be gates. So I'm going to call it the will gate as we move forward and the emotion gate. And then the, the waters of your soul, and then the mind, uh, which God intends to be, to be fixed on something above. So it's supposed to be thinking on very specific things. And that's what ends up controlling the waters of the soul and then dictating to the will and the emotions. However, there's a zone of the evil speedboats. Okay, you see outside of this, as long as it is just dirt outside, you know those evil speedboats can't even get their, their motors turned over and they can't get uh, going. And we're, what our goal is is to not give those evil speedboats any water uh, to zoom around in or any access points. And so the will gates and the emotion gates. Uh, so the will of your life actually is a point of access where the enemy can get in. He is going to make appeals in and to your will. And he's going to do the same in and through your emotions. Oftentimes, we're very ignorant of the fact that he is doing this. And so I'm going to put a little gate uh, there. It's not a very attractive gate. I was struggling to know how to make the gate, right, and make it look good. And obviously, you can have your opinions and if that looks good or not. Or it looks like a gate. It looks like a block that is black. I know. However... Most of us don't recognize that there are access points into our life. It's sort of like in this room, we have windows. If it was negative 10 degrees out, outside, a gate would be like that window. And at any point in time, I could open it. Now, that would be a dumb thing to do, right? When it's negative, what did I say, 20? Or did I say negative 10? Uh, well, whatever it was, we'll make it even worse, negative 30. It's negative 30 outside. Why in the world are we going to open those windows? Especially when there's a sign on the window that says, do not open this window when it's negative 30. And there you are opening the window. And I could say, welcome to the human life right there, where we violate the very code of what makes this a temperature-controlled environment. You know, one of those environments with peaceful, still waters that, that reveal the glory of the heavenlies. You know, it's like there's a great package that God designed, but we're not functioning in accordance with his plan. 
and we're going rogue on his plan. So therefore, we're opening up gates that are letting in things from the outside that are not supposed to. So John 10.10 is going to show the distinction between the agenda of the devil and the agenda of Jesus Christ. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So God's agenda to bring life. So I don't care what the enemy is whispering to you about God's agenda. God's agenda is actually very clear in Scripture. And it's not to make you miserable. It's not to just put weights of condemnation on your shoulders. It's not to make you just feel guilty. It's actually bring you life. And so, yes, he will convict you of your sin so that he can save you from your sin. But his end goal in every one of his operations is to bring you life. And I should even put a capital L on that. Because it's not just to keep you alive in this body. It's to give you supernatural capital L life, which is eternal. The devil's agenda, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Okay, for whatever reason, the enemy can't just leave you alone. Have you ever had that thought? It's just like, why doesn't he find something better to do? But he seems to take all of his tactical strength, his, his machinations, his conspiratorial designs, uh, you know, his he-he-he uh, attitude, and he directs it straight towards you. And, it, you know, it can be rather frustrating. It's like, leave me alone. Look, I, I, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with this battle. You have something to do with this battle. We, as human beings, as this body, this reservoir, as I'm describing it, is the center of God's agenda and the center of the enemy's agenda. And if you just try and plug your ears to that, close your eyes and say, I don't know, make a lot of noise to say, I don't hear that, it doesn't go away. That doesn't mean that you're no longer the center of the battle. The enemy wants you. He wants to destroy you. And you could say, why? What did I do to him? Well, you're God's creation made in his image. And for whatever reason, and we could try and go into the details of why the enemy has it so much against God, but he does. And he stands against everything God stands for. And, he, and God stands chiefly, primarily for you. And so therefore, the enemy wants to destroy you. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And very specifically, I could finish the sentence, you is what he wants to steal from. You are the one that he wants to kill, and you are the one that he wants to destroy. I know that isn't good news, and it doesn't sound very pleasant. You came to church to be edified, to be built up. You didn't come to hear that. However, it's extremely important as believers that we understand the battle that we are in. There's a certain notion out there in Christianity that, you know, people are always talking about war and battle in the church. It's just like they use the war metaphor as the term. It's like, I'm, I remember this one writer saying, I hate it when Christians use the war metaphor. And they're always talking about fighting a good fight. They're talking about their armor and everything. And here, here's where I would just want to stop that whole discussion. I would like to say, hey, it's not a metaphor. This is not something that is likened unto war. This is war. Just because you can't see it does not mean it is not war. So when you treat it lightly is when you're going to lose it. The only way to win this war or this battle that we are in on a daily basis is to first of all understand it and then to understand the weapons of your warfare that you've been given. So that, get this, you can win it. God doesn't train you to lose. He doesn't train you to just you know, call a truce with the enemy. He, he has called you and equipped you to trounce upon the enemy. 
God's agenda is to preserve the soul's peace and to keep out the evil speedboats. I don't know if you've ever seen that in scripture. That's a unique statement, isn't it? The devil's agenda to spoil the soul's peace and to get the evil speedboats inside the outer wall by hook or by crook. So the devil wants to bring in his evil speedboats. Have you ever seen what a speedboat does to nice, crystal clear, still waters? Now, some of you are the ones driving that speedboat. You know exactly what happens, right? And I'm not actually against speedboats. It's just that when you're, if the goal was crystal clear, still waters that are going to perfectly reveal the glory of the heavenlies, you can understand how damaging an evil speedboat would go. When you drive a speedboat, I'm sure it's a good speedboat. But these are evil speedboats that we're talking about. You see, they're assignments of the enemy to disrupt the inner life and to create waves and to create a disturbance in the inner man so the inner man cannot function as it was intended to. God has given us what is called a sound mind. Another way of saying that is still waters. He has given us the ability to function, to see what is true in every situation. So no matter what the news reports say, you can see clearly and you can discern that which is good, that which is right, that which is true. If there's a crisis in your life, the enemy always has a spin on it that he wants to put on it. It's like, oh, look what God's doing to you. Can you believe God did that? But a sound mind is able to discern quickly and to be able to see who God is and to see that God is in control, to see that God is good, that God is desiring to bring me life, that God is not one to miscarry or to abort that which he is doing in my life, but he brings it to full term. And the things that he begins, he brings full term unto life. And you remember these things. And that's what the crystals, clear still waters do for you. The enemy wants to disrupt that. He wants to send in his evil speedboats. I know you guys are really getting into this. All right, so here's our, our, our illustration of your inner life, okay? And you're, look how th those soul waters look so peaceful right now. And there's a will gate, the emotion gate, and then we have the zone of the evil speedboats, right? Oh, boo, we don't like those guys. And so I'm going to show at the will gate, we have something known as stimulation. At the emotion gate, we're going to have something known as strangulation. So stimulants and strangulants. Now, it's interesting because stimulants sound more attractive to us, and that's their whole goal. That's their game. Strangulants can't figure out why we would ever want any of those in our life, and that's because they function off of a different platform, a different reasoning point. So the operation of stimulation. A stimulant is sent to your will gate in an attempt to convince you to open up the will gate in exchange for a must-have. Have you guys ever had something that is a must-have in your life? It's like you really need this in your life. I mean, just think. I mean, life would be so dull without this. And a must-have comes in in various forms and packages. Pornography is a classic illustration of a must-have. And it is a abuse, it is a twisting, it is a perversion of the way we're designed, and it's a con of the enemy. The enemy is saying, if you have this, it will satisfy you. It will give you something that you really need. And so what we do at the will gate is we open it up, and in so doing, we flood out water, which then creates a rise of water for those evil speedboats to turn their engines on and enter in. It creates an avenue of entry that actually is cut off if we say no. If we say no, the enemy has no access. And so why in the world would we ever say yes? Have you ever had that discussion with you? Why did I say yes to that? Because when it comes in, it might give you what we could call a hit. 
it gives you a spike, almost like a drug fix. But then immediately what follows, that evil speedboat that comes in is not a stimulation that feels good. It is condemnation that comes in. And so the speedboat that's zooming around your island is not something that's making you feel good like it promised you. It's actually something that is burying you in guilt and condemnation and in, in everything that you wouldn't want in your life. Well, how'd that get in? It got in through that will gate. Remember that must have? Uh-huh. We need to start addressing those. So the operation of strangulation. Strangulation is a different way, a different function. It's typically going to come in through the emotions gate. A strangulant is sent to the emotions gate to convince you to open up the emotions gate for a false claim, a false notion, a false idea. Now, most of us are going to say, why would I open up for a false idea? Well, you'd say the same thing if I'm not going to open up for a must-have. Yeah, well, somehow the devil knows us well enough to know that we are dumb enough to fall for these tactics because we do. Uh, There's a lot of illustrations I could give for a strangulant. But it is a false notion that you begin to buy. Let me give you some illustrations. I can't, I can't handle this anymore. I just, I just can't keep going like this. That is not God talking to you, by the way. That is a strangulant. And what it is based on is the opposite of faith. And so faith is going to appropriate something very different, which is God is in complete control and he'll give me the grace and his grace is sufficient right now. A strangulant is going to weave its way in with a bait. You can't do this. You can't pull this off. You don't have enough. God isn't working for me. God has forgotten me. The the truth doesn't seem to be functioning for me. False. That is actually a strangulant. And when you open up to it and agree with it, it opens up an emotions gate and evil speedboats get in. And they're going to disrupt your inner life. And so how about this one? Children are such a burden. Okay, when you start looking at the gifts that God has given you, children, if you've ever, some of you haven't had children, so you don't know how this can happen, but actually God's going to go out of his way in scripture to say that children are a blessing. So if you come in through the emotions gate because you're feeling overwhelmed in the moment and you declare it a burden, you could say that's harmless, but what it is, it's an opening of an emotions gate to a false notion. And so when you allow the devil to bait you, it's yes, it's something you feel. I'm not going to doubt that. You do feel it. But don't let your feelings open the gate. Your feelings are not supposed to be the lead of your life. And this is where your mind, that remember that mind with the castle? It's supposed to be sound. And it's supposed to command that will and command those emotions in how to handle that gate. And when they do, when they see clearly and they're seeing the word of God as it is intended to be, they tell the will, no. They tell the emotions, no, here's the truth. But we are vulnerable and susceptible because we don't understand how the enemy plays the game. So a stimulant. So we're back to the stimulant gate. Remember the stimulations, must-haves. A sinful, this is what a stimulant is. It's a sinful operation set to supply an emotional or physical hit in exchange for damning, in a hit, that sounds like a punch to the face, but this is like a, like a drug hit. It's something that is going to produce an excitement or a thrill in your physical body or in your emotional uh, man. And it's going to give you an emotional or physical, physical hit in exchange for dampening your spiritual sensitivities, distracting your mind, cowing and condemning your soul. Could you imagine if you looked at an illegal piece of paper? It's like, all right, I'll give you this 
physical or emotional hit. In exchange, I'm going to be able to dampen your spiritual sensitivities, distract your mind, and cow and condemn your soul. And we're like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And we sign right here. And yet that's technically what we're doing when we're dealing with the devil. It's a legal arrangement that we're creating. A stimulant's favorite phrases are, you must take, you must touch, you must look, you must have, you must eat, you must take claim while it is still available to you. Now, 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 now. This is your opportunity. It is a false rendition of the way you were designed. It is a false bait. It is not in accordance with your best interests. It is the enemy's agenda to invade your inner man and to spoil your inner territory, to disrupt those waters so that you are no longer at peace, but you're in a state of chaos and confusion. Let's look at what a strangulant is. A a strangulant is a sinful operation that specializes in sponsoring doubt, faithlessness, and deception for the expressed purpose of oppressing, overwhelming, terrorizing, and traumatizing. A strangulant's favorite phrases are, now I don't know, I mean these are just a few that I I thought through. I, I I can't do this. Okay, I mean, every single one of us in here, I'm guaranteeing probably has given that quote at some point in time. I just can't do this. I won't ever have enough. You ever had it where you're, whether it's your bank account or whether it's your physical energy or whether it's your physical capacity, it's like you just don't have what you need. I will always struggle with this. Whoa, guys, very dangerous quote right there. Are you going to buy that? Are you going to believe that? There's so many people that have more faith in the enemy's power to control them with, their, with sin than they do in the power of God to deliver them from it. Where's your faith at? Is it in the power of your propensities and your proclivities or in the power of Jesus Christ to save you? This truth, oh, uh, I will always struggle with this. I can't get over this. This truth doesn't work for me. This won't harm anyone. That, that's the, the concept of the enemy's like, come on, you could do this. this. This won't harm anyone. Children are a burden. These struggles are killing me. Okay, actually, those struggles are going to make you stronger if you want the truth. It's see, every single one of those is a lie. And yet when we buy them and when we agree with them, we're opening up an emotions gate because they, they are appealing to an emotional part of us. This is what you feel right now. And if, if you're an Ellerslie student, you know how I respond to that. I don't care what you feel right now. All what, I ma- what matters to me is what the truth is because the truth sets you free. If you want to win this battle, you have to have a life based on truth, not on feelings. Feelings will dupe you. Feelings are a gift from God, but they're meant to serve God's truth in your life. So in other words, when I turn to Jesus and I see him faithful, my emotions rejoice and they, they exult and they worship and they adore. Yeah, that's the right use of an emotion. But when I allow my emotions to lead, then the enemy will play upon them and suddenly I'll turn my back on truth and start allowing my emotions to define my reality. And that's like opening the gate wide. 
filling the, the, the cove, the uh, stimulant cove or the strangulation cove with water and then the engines turn on the evil speedboats and they go rushing in to create havoc in my inner life. So here's just a few things at the wheel gate that we'll oftentimes uh, be uh, struggling with. Sensuality, lust. Uh, you're gonna notice that almost all these are sort of the same thing with different clothing on. Theft, I mean, what is theft but lust? just in a different form. Uh, greed, covetousness, gluttony. All those things are all the same thing. They're still allowing your senses to lead, but they're expressing themselves. One's with food, one's with things, one's with uh, sexuality. Self-indulgence, self-gratification, self-satisfaction. You must have this. You know that it's the smallest movements that actually create the openings in our life? Because some people would say, you know, I didn't set out to commit adultery. And most people don't. But what they do is they start with something very small. And I, I'm going to get to that, but those are called first things. They're small things. Like adultery might be level five behavior. But level one behaviors are actually what create level five behaviors. Because if you open up the dam just a little with a level one, then level two is very easy. It's like, well, yeah, I need to allow a little more in. And then it's actually harder to shut and so what you see is that it's the small compromises, the little notions, the little uh, you know, veering of the eye to stare, to look at, or to, to linger too long, actually that create the breakdown in our lives. The devil knows that. So let's look at the emotions gate. Here's some possibilities at the emotions gate. Complaint, doubt, unforgiveness, irritation, lies. You know, I mean, lies could be in the will side, it could be in the emotion side, but you're feeling that if you say the truth, you're going to be cut off. If you speak what is true, then people will look at you a certain way. And so that's why it's difficult to know which, one, which category to put that one in. But so many of these things are an emotional thing. Most of us address our hurts in our life and our traumas in our life and the grievances against us with emotion. And we feel something towards someone who did something to us, instead of looking at the truth of Jesus Christ, he says, look, I forgave you, and I give you power to forgive others. And so instead, we have a tendency to allow our emotions to lead us to our conclusions and to our behaviors. So the evil speedboats, there are two kinds, stimmies and strangies. I know that uh, you, were, you were wanting to call them stymies and strangies, but no, no, it's from stimulation and from strangulation. So it's, it's actually stimmies and strangies. Okay, so get your pronunciation correct. All right, so here we are. We're back at our, uh, the will gate, and you're going to see stimulation up there. You're going to see a motion gate and a strangulation down there, and you see the zone of the evil speedboats. Okay, when you open up these gates, then suddenly it's going to create an avenue through, for those evil speedboats to actually enter in. Now they're going to be zooming around, and, and you guys know what that means. Your crystal clear still waters, remember the ones that are revealing the glory of the heavenlies? Suddenly are disturbed. And your inner life is off. And some of you are in that exact position right now where you're having a tough time seeing clearly. But a lot of times the reason is, if not 100% of the time, the reason is, is because we have opened the gate. And what we need to do is address that. We need to get these evil speedboats out, number one, and then we need to close the gates that we open to allow them in. And that is the remedy for evil speedboats. And we, as children of the Most High God, have authority in the name of Jesus to do exactly that. 
So there's our stimmies and our strangies. I know they sort of look similar uh, to each other, but they're both evil speedboats, okay? And I know they look like your boat that you just went on you know, this last summer. However, these are evil ones. That was a good one that you drove around, and I'm sure. And so stimmies, when those start zooming around in your life, it's interesting because they came in through a will gate, which is like you must have, and they gave you sort of a thrill, a momentary thrill that doesn't really last that long. You ever notice that? And it's never worth it, ever. And what it brings with it, now the speedboat, what's it doing? It's creating condemnation, distraction, disruption, and dissipation in your life. Dissipation is a total rotting away of your inner man, your morality. And I tell you what, if you knew what you were signing up for, you would have said no to it at the gate, which is, of course, my whole point. If you know what is going to come as a result of that opening of the gate, then you would say, well, I'm not going to open up the gate. And I would say, you are a very smart person. You see, the enemy is playing our ignorance. Remember when Paul says, we, do, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. And then all of us look around and say, I think we, I think we might be ignorant of the enemy's devices. I don't know why he says he's so confident that we're not, because none of us seem to in our modern Christianity know how the enemy works, because we're opening up gates right and left, and we can't even figure out. Paul's going to say, you know, fornication, uncleanness, uh, it shouldn't even be named amongst us as is fitting for the saints. And yet, it's named amongst every one of us. That's not good. Something is off. We need to correct this. So the strangies, what do they bring with them? You started with an emotion. And what is going to be created is a very heavy-duty emotional stronghold. Fear, anxiety, depression, discouragement. And we, we could keep going down the list. Leads to despair. You see, these are emotional strangleholds. These are evil speedboats zooming around going, ha, 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 the whole time. And they're controlling you instead of this water being controlled by the Holy Spirit. You see, God wants to move in. Remember, Jesus is the head, and he wants to train this mind to think God thoughts, to think as he thinks, and then that soul is supposed to be filled, in, in a sense, with that Holy Spirit imp empowerment so that it can literally train those gates to stay shut, to take the will of the master and to actually train those gates how to say, nope, 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 nope. The only thing we open for in our life is the truth, is more of Jesus. The bluffer, oh, Lucifer. Do you remember this guy in Scripture? Boo. You know, he's going to take one-third of the enemies, uh, or I'm sorry, of the angelic host with him. And which means, and I, I don't know, some of you have heard me do the math on this before. The enemy is a bluffer. He wants to make you think that he's so powerful. And yet... He has one-third of the angels, which is a lot. Okay, I'm not, I, I don't want to take that from him. Yes, he does have a lot, but how many more does God have than he has? He has double. God has double the angels, and he's God. Let's just put things into perspective, guys. So if you were a betting person in Vegas, who are you going to bet on? God with his double the angels and the fact that he's the almighty you know, a God who created the heavens and the earth, or the devil who's a created being with one-third? Yeah, I'm going with God on that one. That's just good logic, right? However, the devil's going to bluff his way into getting you to think that he's all-powerful, that he's greater than God in your life, that you're sunk. You have no choice but to submit to him. So two extraordinary bluffs. The first bluff is, uh, devil bluff, is I'm huge, powerful, terrifying, and unable to be resisted. Fear me. So if you remember my message 
uh, striking with the Ricasso from like, I don't know, it was around eight weeks ago. Uh, this is from that. Devil bluff number two, the only way to negate my power over you is to formally, legally, and accurately renounce and revoke every single thing that you ever did wrong and everything your ancestors ever did wrong. And so there's this paralysis that the enemy creates. It's like, okay, if you want to get these speedboats out, you're going to have to name every single one of these speedboats. You're going to have to do it in the exact way at the exact time of day. It has to be 7.01 p.m. at this way, and you need to give us... It has to be perfect. Otherwise, we're not going. Because we're, the enemy is a legalist is the way you would describe it. Okay? And this is a bluff is what I'm going to call it. Bluff number one, the all-powerful Lucifer, fear him. Okay, guys, don't buy this. He wants to make himself seem so much bigger than he actually is. Now, granted, he's more powerful than all of us. We're rather pathetic next to Lucifer. Lucifer is a cherub. He is, you know, has four faces, according to the definition of cherubs in the, in the Bible. It's four wings. He has the hands of a, a man, feet of a hind. Isn't that weird? That's like really strange. Read the book of Ezekiel and Marvel. Uh, it is rather strange, but... And he's, he, the, the cherub, when they move, they move like lightning. And when they flap their wings, it sounds like the rushing of mighty waters, like Niagara Falls. So, yeah, I'm impressed. However, compared to God, he's nothing. Compared to us, he's impressive. Compared to God, he's nothing. It's like a wolf to a sheep. We're the sheep, he's the wolf. But then the shepherd steps into the storyline. And we all grin. And we're like, yeah, but we have a shepherd. You see, we're weak as sheep but we have the almighty shepherd. Don't buy this bluff. Hebrews 2, 9 and 14, Jesus might taste death for everyone that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The prince of this world is judged, John 16, 11. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8, 3, and crucified our old man with him on the cross that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, Romans 6, 6. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body that you would obey it in the lust thereof, Romans 6, 12. This one who is bluffing that he's all-powerful is actually defeated. You need to know that as a believer. 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 27, 1 through 3, now think about this in regards to your soul and that which is encamped around you. A Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Yeah. So devil bluff number one is the all-powerful Lucifer fear him. Well, how about we go with a devil bluff buster number one. The enemy has nothing on Jesus. He can't stop Jesus. He can't violate Jesus. He can't undermine the purposes of Jesus. He can't sabotage the, sabotage the life of Jesus. And I am in Jesus. You see, that's what the mind needs to conclude, is that the enemy can't take down Jesus, has nothing on Jesus, can't stop Jesus. And guess where I find my residence? In Jesus. So therefore, like a shield of faith which repels all the fiery darts of the evil one, if I'm in Jesus, that means the enemy can't stop me. And that is the right conclusion. 
So let's look at the uh, second devil bluff. Number two, Lucifer the legalist. Even if you don't fear him, you must fear the fact that you may never solve the legal code for nullifying his power over your life. This is a very unique one. This is what I dealt with in depth in the message striking uh, with the Ricasso, where I'm, I'm dealing with what are we supposed to do because the enemy is, is constantly saying, no, you didn't get it right. Yeah, I'm not leaving. Yeah, I'm gonna stay here. My evil speedboats are gonna stay here until the day you die because you can't get the right formula legally to get me out. And all of us are like, how do I know the right formula? What is the right way to pray? How are we supposed to do this? It's a bluff. Don't buy it. The legalist, Lucifer, he is, he's a legalist. He tries to blame us, he tries to make us legalists, but he's the chief legalist. The slick attorney, here's what he says. Technically, you didn't tell me to leave, you just told me to get lost. I did that. I got lost for a minute, and look, I found my way back. Technically, you didn't call me by my actual legal name. My name is the spirit of paralyzing fear. You commanded the spirit of fear to depart. That's not me. You didn't say it right, therefore I don't need to go. So wait a minute, I have authority, but if I don't use that authority just right with like this laser-like precision, the enemy's got me. And I can't tell you how many of us as Christians are struggling with this issue in our lives. How do you deal with a legalist? You, do you need to play the perfection game? I need to do it just this way. I need to have it just said just right. The perfection game, you must determine every single open window in your life, you must know the accurate name of every single window in your life, you must close every window in your life according to the perfect standard of legalistic exactitude, and if you do not, then the enemy will continue to dominate your life. How do you deal with a legalist? Hint, don't become a legalist to nullify a legalist. The enemy's trying to make you a legalist. He's trying to make you focus on specifics when your solution to all of the law of God is to enter into Christ by faith. Your solution is Christ. You don't need to fight battles you don't know how to fight. He's the one that fights the battles for you. Do you not remember that? Is that not what scripture uh, barks all throughout it? So how do you deal with a legalist? You don't attempt to match him sword for sword, shield for shield, and javelin for javelin. Listen to this as an example of how to deal with a legalist. 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of, armies of, God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You need a little Davidic bark inside of your soul. No, devil, I don't play your game. You may be a legalist, but I'm not. I know one simple thing. You're defeated. And in the authority of Christ's name, get out. He has no argument back. And when Paul trains us, when Peter trains us how to deal with the enemy in our life, do you know that he doesn't talk about, you need to get this exactly right? Never does that. That's something that we have concocted. Psalm 25 through 9. By the way, there's some odd thing hanging down there. Have you guys noticed that in the screen? Is it on the other side too? I think it's for our commissioned uh, theatrical performance tonight, but I just noticed it. You guys have been staring at it this whole time, wondering what that was. Uh, it's very nice. Nice touch. Uh, so it's Psalm 25 through 9. 
We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Just imagine if you handled your inner life this way. We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. Isn't that a great statement? Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. Devil bluff number two, and then I'll give you the devil bluff buster number two. Devil bluff number two is if you don't perfectly, legally, and properly extract the devil from your life with fastidious exactitude, then he's here to stay. All right, what's the bluff buster? It's not legal exactitude that removes the devil. It's not the perfection of revoking phrases uttered, nor is it the perfect enunciation of each demonic name of every demonic operator. The secret is faith in the name of Jesus and simple trust that he and he alone delivers a soul from the enemy's power. James 4, 7 says it very clearly. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Nothing else needed, guys. Submit to God, resist the devil. He will flee. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wear Jesus, and you can stand against the wiles. You wear Jesus as your armor. You live inside Jesus. He is your residence. Your new address is Jesus Christ, right hand of the Father, heavenly realms. That is your soul's location. And you wear that, and when you pray from that location, where you, how are you praying? In the name of Jesus. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. That is our secret. I don't care what the enemy says. I don't care how he bluffs and blusters, says, you didn't do it right. I'm going to try and linger. You can't linger. You're out of here. Because I know the one in whom I have believed, and he has defeated you. All I need to do is submit to my God and resist. You have no recourse. You have no legal answer to that. You're done for around here. It's that simple. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So here's what we do. We resist, and we still have some speedboats zooming around. We're like, wait a minute, what? And so the enemy says, yeah, this doesn't work for you. Steadfast in the faith. You keep your, the palm of your spiritual hand out like this, and guess what? He runs out of gas. It's when we begin to pull back and say, maybe it doesn't work. That's what he feeds on, guys. He's trying to get new fuel to his boats. You must resist and then stand firm in the faith. Because when you first resist, there's a lot of noise still. And you must stand and stand and stand. You'll recognize he has no fuel left. And he's dying out. He has to leave. You are a child of the most high God. The devil is defeated. His head is crushed. Live that way. The cure to the evil speedboats. We're going to call their bluff. They have actually have no legal means of being here except for the fact that I sinned. That's the only allowance they have is I am a child of God, which means this territory is bought and purchased by the shed blood of Jesus, known as my inner life. 
And the enemy wants to say, no, I have legal position to be here. You only have legal position because I disobeyed. So I am coming to Jesus and I'm seeking forgiveness for that and I'm calling your bluff and I'm saying, you can't stay here. You have no grounds to remain. And then cut off their access. That's resist in the authority of Christ's name. Boom, kick those boats out. And then close off their water source, repent. So say, acknowledge what has taken place and turn from it. Change your mind on it. If you've been calling your children a burden, repent of that and say, actually, that's not true. My children are a blessing from the Lord. You need to overwrite that which the enemy has tried to serve up as your reality. You need to apply truth to it in this area of your life. And then for all you military connoisseurs, move from DEFCON 5 to 1. When you're at DEFCON 5, oh, this is peace. DEFCON 1, eh, eh, eh. not just are we on call, we are going to war. You, we need to be in war mode, guys. I know that sounds tiring. It's like, oh boy, I just want peace. Remember those crystal clear still waters? I really like that. Yeah, you want that? Move to DEFCON 1. That's how you maintain it. You guard these walls. You push back the enemy, not just in your own life, but you work in, in the lives of others. We're in the midst of a battle and the enemy is trying to win something that he cannot win. Our job as believers is to stand for the truth in this generation. So the specific cure to the stimulants, I want you to monitor first things so that we can dry up stimulant cove. And when I say dry it up, there are certain things that keep water in it that keep it sort of functional in our life as a constant threat because you may have the gate closed but you've supplied a lot of water in that area and as a result there's a lot of noise coming from that a lot of bait that's coming from that side of the ledger if you've participated in a certain behavior it makes you that much more susceptible to do it again if any of you have ever walked through a season of cutting something off and then walking through the detox season and I don't just mean of drugs, I mean of detoxing from a must-have. That no one may know in your life that you had a must-have, but you have to go through a similar detox season because it will spike and it will be really hard if you don't have an actual clear position strategically and tactically to say no, to say no, and to even know that a week from now they're gonna continue to harass and you don't even do the smallest movement in that direction. And if it's with your eyes, you won't even look. And if it's a certain location that the enemy always baits you at, you don't even go to that location. If it's certain things that you're around and you I must have that, then don't go around those things. And if you're ever around those things, you flee the situation instead of cultivating it even for one revolution in your mind. You have to know how serious the battle is. If you don't take it seriously and move from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1, you're a goner in this battle. You have to know how serious it is and fight like it's your soul that hangs in the balance. Monitor first things. First things are oftentimes so small that we chuckle at them. It's like, yeah, you've got to be kidding. Are you serious? And uh, yes, I am. First things. Like for me, if I ever am going to be lax, like for, I'll give you a first thing that's going to sound totally ridiculous to you. First thing for me, I don't know if it affects anyone else watching the news, listening to the news. And you can say, well, how does that do anything? Well, it impacts my inner man. It stirs me up and I get mad. I don't know if you guys have ever had that emotion. 
over these past years, there's been a lot of opportunity to get mad. And you can say, who are you mad at? I don't know, but there's, there's a group of people that I'm really mad at right now. It's sort of like this nameless, faceless uh, group known as they. They are up to no good. Look what they are doing. And so what I have done is I have detoxed from that vulnerability in my life. It's like, no, I want God's news story. God, God, what's going on in this world? That's what I want to watch. I want to know what he's up to. I don't want to know what the devil's up to because knowing what the devil's up to gets me all stirred up. Okay, I'm giving you a sample in my life. And I've given many other samples over the years, like puzzles is a sort of a joking one that I've thrown out there. Even though it's very serious to me, it sounds really funny when I say it. But a puzzle is an odd access point for me. I don't know that it affects anyone else on earth the way it affects me. But I will like start a puzzle. I actually started because I realized I had a problem with puzzles uh, early in our marriage, so I stopped. But then my kids were coming along and they were interested in puzzles, so like I could do it. This would be a family thing. Pretty soon my kids give up on the puzzle and I'm like over the table staring for a piece and then I I come out, unless it's like it's dinner time, I come out and I'm like in this zone where one eye's up here, one eye's over there. And I'm thinking about the puzzle. Where's that piece? Why, why, I can't find that piece. And Leslie's talking to me. She goes, are you thinking about that puzzle? <laughs> I know, no, I'm not thinking about the puzzle. What did I just say to you? I, I don't know. I mean, it was something about uh, Hudson. You just mentioned something about Hudson. You're not listening to me. And so I begin to recognize that a puzzle would take me out of my assignment. It would distract me and put me into this other zone of fog. And if something does that to you, well, guess what? You're vulnerable. I don't want to be vulnerable. That's a first thing for me. And so if you recognize the first thing, take it seriously. I don't care if it's a puzzle. In other words, it sounds dumb and it sounds ridiculous. You don't need to get up in front of an audience and announce it to people like I am now. You just say, no, I'm not going to do that. When I go on dates, I really like Italian food. And so Leslie and I were trying to think of where to go on a date night. Oh, well, Italian, Italian sounds really nice. And so I go to an Italian, we, we'd go to Italian a lot. And I would always sort of end up with lasagna. I really like lasagna. And lasagna the next day is even better than the first day. I don't know if you guys have ever tried that. Oh, it's just fantastic. And so uh, I'm thinking all those things through, mainly from my stomach's angle and not from any other angle. And inevitably, when I would eat lasagna, it would go straight to my stomach and draw all my blood to my stomach and I would be like falling asleep, I would be dizzy, I'd get little uh, digestive issues and you have to step out for a little bit and Leslie's like, you ate lasagna. (laughs) And it's true. In other words, if I know something is going to impair my time with Leslie, what should I do? Not eat lasagna. And it doesn't mean lasagna is evil in and of itself, but it's a first thing that leads to a second thing which then leads to, you know, a, a breakdown in communication. And that's precious time. So I want to proactively live my life in such a way. What keeps the water calm in my life? What keeps it so that my mind is centered on things above? I don't care how ridiculous it sounds. That's what I want to do. So the specific cure to strangulance. Replace the lies with truth. For some of you, you have a a lie that's been lingering in there that the truth of God doesn't work for you, that the weights you're carrying right now are too heavy for you, that you're not gonna be able to keep going with things as it is. You will keep going because the grace of God is sufficient for you. Do you not know that? That God will give you every single thing you need to walk through this challenging season. 
every bit of it. Don't buy it for a second. So if you have allowed a lie to trade out for the truth in your life, where suddenly the truth doesn't work for you and a lie is more reasonable to you, that is an open gate. The truth will set you free. So I want you to override that lie with the truth. To spend time, even if you need to write them all down, write down all the lies that you have barked out of this mouth of yours or even turned over in your mind and say, what is the truth, Lord? I want to write that down. Go and dig up actual scripture references and just put them down, memorize them, and then repeat them back whenever the enemy baits you to have that same lie. Aggressively monitor Strangulant Cove. You cannot be passive with this. This is an active engagement point in your life, and obviously you've had a struggle with it, so you need to put a guard there. You need to be extra sensitive there. Like, uh, you know, we, we've had multiple backups uh, from our uh, septic system. And so what you do is you put a little monitor down there that goes, dee, 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 you know, when, when you, it actually starts backing up. Yeah, do that in your soul so that you can be sensitive to the enemy's movement. And then Paul gives a very specific list in Philippians. He says, okay, guys, I want your mind to think on these particular things which ironically leaves out a lot of things in life. And he says, this is what is going to make you solid and healthy. So let's look at that list. Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is where your mind is fixed. So here's our uh, healthy soul. You'll notice that uh, the will gate and the emotions gate have been cut off. You see how I crossed out strangulation and crossed out uh, stimulation? Well, that's symbolic of saying no in the authority of Christ Jesus. Now look at my evil speedboat over there. See how it's run aground? It's because it doesn't have the fuel. It doesn't have the water that we are supplying it by agreement. So it doesn't have the ability to zoom around in our life. Is it still there? Yeah, unfortunately. Don't you wish you could bust it up? Instead, it's like an active thing that is in our life. Your propensity to sin is still there. I know, it bothers you. It's sort of like being in a plane and realizing that gravity is still out there. You know, but you're, as long as you remain in the plane, you're under a higher law of aerodynamics. And as long as you abide in that plane and remain in that plane, guess what? Gravity has no hold over you. The same is true with that evil speedboat. Yeah, it's still there. And it can turn its motor over at any juncture of time that you want to give it life again. But what if you monitor your gates? What if your mind is fixed on things above? Then that soul water, even though there will be crisis, even though there will be traumas in your life, you could be marked by peace in the middle of it all. Because those bombs are going off outside your walls. They don't have to go off inside. It does not need to disrupt the water of your soul. Isn't that an amazing thought that you could be led to your execution because you're a Christian and you could be tortured and you could still have calm waters on the inside. You could be short of finances. You could have a health crisis and yet you could have calm waters on the inside. Welcome to Christianity. This is a gift of grace that we have been entrusted. But to keep that gift, God says, I want you to watch your walls. I don't care what encircles you. I don't care what is around you. I have given you all that you need to be marked by that peace in your inner man. 
So I'm just going to give you a hint of the life that God has called you to right there. See, there you are. Uh, that's that peaceful reservoir. Doesn't that look nice? It's beautiful. So I gave this word to the students this last week. It's a word uh, that is translated as intercession in Romans 8. But it's actually a bigger word than typically, typical, the typical word that is translated as intercession. Intercession meaning to stand on one's behalf. Typically in the New Testament, it's almost 100% used to describe prayer. In other words, interceding on, someone beha- on someone's behalf in faith by standing on their behalf in prayer. And so what we have is this word is going to come out in this context, Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's a lot in that one passage that is very rich. But when it talks about intercession, but the Spirit himself makes intercession, and then lower down it says, this, because he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, it's using this word, which is hyper intukano. Intukano is intercession. This is hyper intercession. The Holy Spirit does this on our behalf. So I gave the illustration to the students of the father that reaches over his son. The son can't pull the bow, but then the father reaches over, fixes his hands on top of the son's hands and pulls the bow for him, aims it with him. It's the son shooting the bow and the son's gonna get the credit for the shot, but it's actually the father overreaching and enabling with his strength and his ability that's going to enable him to make the shot. I use the illustration of the putt-putting, you know, when you have little kids and you reach over your child and you fix their hands on the, and the, on the putt-putter and you fix your hands over them and you go, oh, here we go. It goes on their scorecard, but guess what? It's the enabling power and the overshadowing strength and the help of the father that actually gets them the good score. And the same is true with us. We're the little toddler in the story. We're the one that can't pull back the bow. We don't know how we ought to pray. We don't know how we can deal with this problem with the enemy in our life. Yet you have been given the grace of God to hooper and to cano you. And even in your weakness, all you have is a wheeze, a groan. God, help me. That's enough. That's all he needs to overshadow, to pull back, to putt-putt for you, to do the work that you can't do for yourself. The secret strength of the gospel is not you. It's him. Your job is to acknowledge your need, is to allow him to overshadow you, is to allow him to work through you to accomplish these great things. Look at the last line. And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So what if you're going through a trial right now? What if you're short on finances? What if your health is struggling? What is the truth in that moment? God is going to win. And he is going to turn even this for my good. So therefore, I can actually rejoice right now knowing that God is in complete control and he is going to hooper and tukano in my situation and turn this all for good, even if it seems really bad right now. And if you have a whole bunch of evil speedboats zooming around inside, he'll take even that right now. As you're hearing this message and responding to this message, he'll take even that and turn it for good in your life and he'll kick them out. All things work together for good, including our faith-filled, listen to this, imperfect prayers. We don't know how we ought to pray. We don't know exactly how to do this. You don't need to do it perfectly. 
God is going to respond to faith. He's going to respond to that childlike cry inside of you to say, God, I just need a savior. The preciousness of a toddler, and I've used this illustration many times at Ellerslie in the church. We struggle because we feel like we're supposed to be perfect, which, I mean, for good reason, we're called to be perfect as he is perfect, right? It's like, hey, I see that right there. However, the way to be perfect in the kingdom of heaven is to hide in his perfection. That's your great secret because we're a work in process. I just want you to imagine if you're a parent and you have a toddler, that toddler is not perfect in its physiological development. It's precious, it's cute as all get out, but it's not perfected yet in its maturity. It is a work in process. And so that child, as they have a diaper on and as they're learning to walk and they don't walk perfectly, it's called a toddle. And guess what? I don't know of any of you in here that don't think a toddle is cute. Isn't that amazing to think that we as humans would esteem an imperfect walk as cute, as precious? Because we know what it leads to. It's just a season, and it's a precious season. The same is true with us as we are moving forward in the kingdom of heaven. My hunch, and I think it's a good hunch, especially since God himself, what Jesus is going to say, you know, if earthly fathers do this, how much more would a heavenly father do this? Well, if an earthly father were to think a child toddling, learning to walk, even though it's an imperfect walk, even though they stumble and they get back, come on, come on, you can do it, is cute and precious, how much more does our heavenly father look at our first steps forward that are imperfect, but are desirous to please him as precious? So guys, I read this about eight weeks ago, and I think it really fit in well again. This is... uh, a psychological study was done to show that you can, as long as you take the first and the last letter of a word uh, and keep it stable, then you can jumble all the letters on the inside and it actually can be understood. Now, I want you to think about this as being your life. Okay, and you're gonna recognize that it's imperfect, yes, but you can perfectly understand it. In other words, God can perfectly relay his message to us and through us, even though we are imperfect. So I'm gonna read this for you and just shock you guys that I can read what's on the screen. As humans, we don't appear to be the best carrying devices for the message of heaven, do we? Why doesn't God use angels instead? Or for that matter, why doesn't he just do it himself? Why doesn't he just come down in a cloud of glory and boom with a voice of thunder? but he has indeed chosen us and all our jumbled weakness to be his ideal communication vessels. That said, if he is going to use us, he must first establish two things in our life. First, a firm belief in the word of God in text. And second, a firm belief in the word of God made flesh and what that word of God in flesh did for us 2,000 years ago on that cross. When those two things are established, it's the equivalent of having the first letter and the last letter of every word in this paragraph fixed and established. The stuff in the middle is often jumbled, but the message will still perfectly get through the imperfect vessel. Isn't God amazing? Isn't that remarkable just to see that? Because for all practical purposes, that should be illegible. We should not be able to understand that. And wouldn't that be a great description of our lives? Our lives should be in, in, uh, illegible as far as communicating the glory of the heavens. Because we are not doing so well, guys. We're not that impressive, and yet God has chosen us to be his revelatory vehicle. Not because we're perfect or we get all the middle letters right, but because we get him right. We base our life with faith upon him, and it locks in the first and the last letter, 
When we say, God, you have expressed yourself to us in your word, and that word reveals you as my savior. Boom, we lock that in, and suddenly, though we are in the middle of being uh, you know, matured and perfected, somehow through our life, God wants to showcase his grandeur. So here's our finishing quote. God is perfect, yes, but he specializes in using imperfect vessels. Christianity, right there. Father, I ask that you would just freshly remind us of your goodness and your grace, that you would freshly strengthen us for the battle that we're in, that we would move from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. Lord Jesus, that we would not take it lightly what the enemy is trying to get away with in our life, but that we would aggressively respond in faith to take down the enemy and his devices. Lord Jesus, we love you and we submit to you. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.